Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. The guest this week is Caitlin Thompson. Uh, she is the co-founder of Racket, a tennis-focused media company with a flagship quarterly print magazine. They certainly go beyond a print magazine. They're great merchandise, uh, experiential uh, events. Caitlin also co-hosts the Racket Magazine podcast with Renee Stubbs, which I absolutely recommend. Caitlin Thompson really is just an interesting voice in tennis. Uh, if you happen to uh, have read her stuff or follow her on Twitter, she's just really passionate and informative about the subject. We worked together at uh, Time Inc. like way back in the day, and she was the first person I ever did anything with podcasting. She was running Time Magazine's podcasting department. This was like in the like late 2000s, and she was just so ahead of the curve. And I remember walking away thinking like, this woman is like crazy smart and somebody should give her like a million bucks to form this podcast idea because she will make this company a mint. Naturally, of course, I don't think Time Inc. did that and the rest is podcast history elsewhere. But uh, Caitlin Thompson is my guest. If you like tennis, you will love this. We get into so much stuff, including how we view the coverage of tennis today, the most interesting people in the sport right now. Uh, our thoughts on ESPN's coverage, our thoughts on the coverage of uh, legacy media and uh, the lack of tennis coverage right now, as well as um, tennis Twitter and what that is like. So Caitlin Thompson for about 50 minutes coming up. If you like these kind of conversations, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how this podcast continues. All right. Without any more delay, Caitlin Thompson, co-founder of Racket. All right, as I said at the top, very excited to have Caitlin Thompson on. She's the co-founder of Racket, which is a tennis-focused media company with a flagship quarterly print magazine. For those of you who don't know Racket, and there probably will be many of you who listen to this podcast who don't, since it's more of a general interest sports media podcast, I'll let her explain it. She also co-hosts the Racket Magazine podcast with Renee Stubbs. That is a very, very fun listen. If you are a tennis fan, uh, Caitlin and Renee have really no problems offering opinions on that podcast, and I am pleased <laughs> to be joined by uh, my way back in the day, old time Inc. colleague, Caitlin Thompson. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. What a delight 
full intro and thank you for having me. I'm so happy to talk with you. Yeah, well, let me just say this for my audience, um, many of whom uh, may not be familiar with Caitlin's work, and we'll get into it, but she at Time Inc. was so ahead of the curve on podcasting and its potential. Like, I remember meeting with her. I swear, that I wish I could remember the day, Caitlin, but it had to be mid-2000s, yep. where you were like the only person in the entire, it felt like, Time Inc. world, which back then was a big world who was like experimenting with podcasts and sort of talking about this form. You know, again, if I could wave a magic wand, I wish somebody had given you like a million dollars to start like a podcast division because like that thing would have been worth hundreds of millions of dollars by the time you were done. You were so out of the curve on this. Thank you for that, Richard. You're right. I did found the podcast department just at time.com only instead of the entirety of the, the office. And I, think the offer to give me millions of dollars is still on the table. There's still an option to do that because I like to think I've been ahead of the curve on a couple of things. And I say this with absolute humility. I just, I want to help people tell stories. That's what I did at time when we were colleagues in the, in the time life building, I can barely believe it. It must've been 2007 or 2008. Um, you know, and obviously that's what we're doing at racket. So yeah, give give me the money. I got you. I'm going to hire great people and we're going to get amazing things done because that's all I've been about for my career in media. Well, I'll ask I'll see if what Gojo, what if what kind of money they have. <laughs> give me a Gojo deal. Come on. All right, before I get into racket, let me ask you my my sort of broad overall question because I I love this question for somebody who's so into tennis like yourself. Um, who are the most interesting tennis players today? And I'm using that very very open-ended uh, in terms of the word interesting to you. There's so many the, the sort of pitchman's dancer is the recreational player. The comeback of tennis as a recreational sport for me has been the most amazing uh, theory uh, validating and exhilarating thing to watch for me as the co-founder of Racket sort of presaging a recreational boom. So I know that's a bit of a, a different kind of answer, but the recreational player feeling like they can have a space in the sport, a lot of new people who've adopted the sport and it's the fastest growing racket sport. Yes, you did actually hear that, right? It is the fastest growing racket sport, particularly among black and brown players. Um, to me has been the most interesting thing to watch because it hasn't connected itself to the tennis world, the way that, you know, playing uh, corner basketball connects to the NBA. The The sport hasn't really taken an interest in its recreational players. And I think there's just so much opportunity, but the real, you know, answer that you're looking for is like, it's obviously, you know, Carlitos Alcaraz and women, you know, between Sabalenka, Rybakina, Sviantek, and a handful of others. There's so much parity on the tours right now. And everybody has such deep benches that it really comes down to matchups, which is the kind of tennis that I have loved since I came up in the eighties and nineties. And it's the kind that we had at the peak of the sport when you didn't know who was going to win the tournament at the end of the two weeks. And I think that's when the sport shines brightest. And for everybody who doesn't understand what a what a non-Rafa Roger Novak world looks like with Serena gone to me it's it's been waiting for us all along and it's here it's a deep deep bench on both sides and that's so exciting for me do you think the um does the sport on both sides does it need a dominant number one and number two for generally speaking for most of the most of my lifetime as far as someone who's watched tennis and written about it there have been distinctive one, two, whether it's uh, going back old school, like, you know, Martina Chris or 
uh, Borg McEnroe or, you know, whatever, Lendo McEnroe, Lendo Connors and Sam Persagasy getting sort of more modern, obviously, Roger, uh, Rafa, uh, uh, Novak, etc. on the women's side. Um, really not the case with Serena for extended periods, but certainly <laughs> Graf Sellis. Yes. Um, and then, you know, when Serena sort of wasn't number one, you know, Sharapova might have a rivalry with uh, Wozniak. Hen- you know sure. I mean? like, yeah, like Hennen, Kleisters. So, like, the sport as a general rule has been driven by some kind of rivalry up top between two or three players who, in theory, can be number one. Now, you do have that right now. It feels like a, like literally at the moment on the women's side. Yeah. Uh, the men's side, I, I, that's sort of like in the post Novak world, I mean, I guess it'll emerge, but like sort of how do you see it? Does it need it? Does it have to have like, you know, two constellations and then you have all these other players like floating around it? It's a great question. And I think, you know, obviously you point to some amazing duos. We wrote a piece and the reason I mentioned Henna among your list of luminaries is because she was kind of the closest thing that Serena had to a rival. They didn't play that often, but their record's almost head to head, really even because the way that Hennen played was actually sort of dismantling for Serena and it made for an actually good match. Whereas really only Serena loses when Serena doesn't have it together as opposed to somebody beating her. Henna proved that wrong. But I, I want to answer your question two ways. So yeah, one, on one hand it's happening on the women. We have this Rubakina, Sabalenka, Shriantek sort of trio that's, that's, that's kind of emerging. The men you could probably say it's going to come down to, especially post Novak, although who knows how long he can play dominantly, which, you know, I think, Right now, it looks like a long time. Um, it probably looks like Carlitos and Sinner are two members of that. And then what what fills that out is kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. Is it Taylor Fritz? Is it uh, Francis Tiafo? Is it Seb Corda? You know, there's a lot of upside. I don't know that it's Car- uh, Ru- uh, Rus- uh, Rude or maybe it's Runa, just because, you know, I think the, the ceiling on those guys is a little bit lower than it is on some of the other ones we've mentioned before. But I think what I, what functionally is interesting about your question is, and that I'm trying to kind of challenge is it's the matchups, right? Like the matchups are what those duos really compelled in us. Chrissy was cool American girl, two-handed backhand. Martina was rushing the net, uh, you know, experimenting, immigrants, experimenting in innovations in physique, Rafa, Roger, Fire and Ice. You know, I think I think it's to me it's less about the rivalry, although it's plenty about the rivalry, but it's more about the differences. And I think you can actually have that on a healthy tour. The part of the tour that I remember loving the most was like Sampras, Agassi, but also Chang and Courier and a few others. Right? Like the foursome actually is more compelling than the twosome. The really peak days of like late career graph, Celis is stabbed but coming back capriati both williams sisters are young when it's chaos it's actually more fun Berlea. because of the exactly because of the variety you know so i think the sport and this is really where we've tried to push things forward like the sport does a pretty poor job of of setting the the tone and and explaining the context and i think that's a huge way to you know just as drive to survive for f1 showed us Sometimes the battle between P10 and P11 is just as valuable as P1 and P2, right? And I think that it's just based on a lack of resources, a lack of imagination, and a lack of, uh, you know, new voices in the sport that have limited it to the same kind of, the same kind of 
I think, uh, dynamic. One more thing on the players, then we'll get to Rack, and then we're going to do media stuff. But you know what's sort of interesting to me is Jessica Pagula's results, right? She's, as of, as of we speak today, she's the number three player in the world. But yet the publicity that she gets, or re- quite frankly, what I'm trying to say is does not get yeah. as the number three player in the world is kind of amazing to me. And this does feel like... um like an odd product of her time. Like if you put Jess, if Jessica Bugula was the number three player in women's tennis in like 1983 or something, you know what I'm saying? Like she would be a mega U S star. Um, you know what I'm saying? But like, again, I think people in the tennis world absolutely respect her. She's really good on all surfaces. She had incredible like year and a half stretch, but you know what I mean? Like she's, She's under the radar. She's under the radar. Yeah, she's. She, it's amazing. How can a number three player in the world who's an American be under the radar? Yet she is. Also, not to mention she's top five in men, women women's singles and doubles with Coco Goff, yeah. who is one of the most high profile players on the tour. Um, no, it's interesting you mentioned JPEG because I'm writing JPEG is what I lovingly refer to her as. Um, I'm writing a little bit of a piece that I can't say more about, but she factors in not for us, but for another glamorous media outlet. And I really spent a lot of time. I had the opportunity to kind of float around a little bit about the Americans, but I really spent a lot of time on her because I find as you do her incredibly compelling, not just because she's, you know, top three in the world, but really because I think I've seen something in her that I can unlock narratively that because of the lack of imagination and because of the, maybe the lack of staffing, you know, like, you know, all of these newspapers and television outlets and dot coms had multiple, multiple writers who were searching for stories, who were searching for characters. Now it's just a cursory, okay, is there one big story coming out of the the French today? I guess that's what I'll read about in the Times because there's one person, right. maybe some of the freelancers, yep. but really yeah. Matt. Like Monfils was the story yesterday because of his amazing match. Exactly. But that's the choice that they're making as opposed to, oh, if this is World Cup, you know, there's... 10 stories a day. And that's what, if what, that's what a grand slam is for, for two weeks. Right. And so I think JPEG is for me, a good example, especially because she's American, especially because she's not just a flash in the pan. She's been building a solid resume over the course of the last couple of years. She's somebody who would benefit and I hope will benefit from just more people, meaning me in this case, but I hope to encourage others, like really shining the light of what makes her compelling. And for me, it's the fact that she does not need any of this. Jess Pagula is a billionaire. The idea that she has been grinding, she is a grinder. She's not like, oh, you know what? I'm going to be, you know, sort of playboy or playgirl tennis type, have my tennis parents make a huge donation to the Federation and get me some wild cards, show up to Monte Carlo, take my family jet. You know, she could do that. She could do that easily. And she's grinding it out in like the 250 at, you know, Bogota because she just loves it and she's hungry. And I think you, you can't overstate how much of an effort that is and how much it's paid off. She got interviewed on a post-match mic moment in Charleston after being down for love, I think it was in the quarters and, and the interviewer was like, what happened out there? How, how do you put your mind around what you just did? And she just said, I'm tough. I'm a tough out. And I was like, yes, you are. That mentality is you can't coach that. And the fact that she has it is unbelievable. So again, she's just an example of one of the many, 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 many stories that are just kind of not being highlighted by not having a really functional tennis media apparatus. 
Yeah, that's well said. I mean, she's obviously her family. Um, her family is a family of billionaires. Yet, honestly, she plays like somebody who has to win yes. in order yes. to get into like a tournament. It's, Completely right. It's, and I'm sure everyone really knows who's listening to the Athletic Media podcast. But they own the Bills. They own the Sabers. Yeah. Like they're good. Right. The Pagulas do not need. She does not need to play for money. She. Somebody was joking on the internet and said she plays like they're about to raise the inheritance tax rate like and she <laughs> laughed and said lol because she thinks it's funny and cool so yeah again there's so many stories she's also self-aware which is nice that's really actually you know you appreciate that um and yeah and the left you know obviously um coco goff uh is number six in the world right now 19 so that would be obviously the other american to watch in terms of a uh, uh american woman i should say in terms of a, of a potential long stretch in the top five Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. All right, tell my um, tell my audience about Racket. What is it? Racket is a media company about tennis. We started with a print quarterly, and you and I had a very fun conversation right around the time we were we were starting in a different podcast in a different lifetime when we really sort of set forth to make the mission of tennis open, encouraging, warm, funny, culturally relevant, diverse, and to tell those stories in the pages of a beautiful print quarterly magazine. Um, and we've been doing that. We are about to publish our 23rd issue later this summer. And I feel immense, immense pride because I, along with my co-founder, David, who really runs the magazine portion of things, especially as we've expanded, um, have like consistently hired, trained, collaborated with, and I think amplified voices, both inside our sport, but more importantly, outside of it, that have added something vital. We've done award-winning creative work, one of the covers by Deborah Roberts, which is a piece of collage about Venus Williams is now in a museum. You know, we've won some awards, we've published hard-hitting investigative pieces. And, you know, I just feel like it's sort of, you know, without tooting our own horn, like a pretty staggering achievement in and of itself. And then around it, we've built this creative agency event and sort of very cool collab business because the opportunity in tennis well, let me put it another way. Tennis did not has not figured out a lot of things that we see as being very, very obvious. And I think for those reasons, our opportunity kept expanding. Like, oh, well, mm, there's no cool merch and clothing that only kind of comes out once in a while. We could cover it or we could start making it with some of these brands or ourselves or with outside brands. Cool. There's no big, cool party to go to, like a Coachella or a South by Southwest or you know, a fader fort or a complex con around these big events where everyone cool gathers, especially people from like 
art and culture, huh, I guess we'll make Racket House. You know, I think for us, like, it just sort of showed, I, we're not going to get into the live broadcast rights conversation at this point, although I, I am keen to talk about it from a sort of viewer consumer standpoint later. But, you know, as we started growing and just attracted all these amazing people, the talents, the Andrea Pekoviches who started writing for us and then became a larger cultural attache and then became the star of a video series we just did, which is like basically tennis tourism. Um, you know, we just kind of started collecting amazing people and it sort of has turned into this really big thing, which I'm, I, I saw, but I didn't realize how fun it was going to be to pull to life and how much people were going to respond to it, especially the ones who kind of felt like maybe the door was closed and the sport wasn't open to them. That is really like what I feel like we've accomplished. We've made it feel that and linking this to the recreational tennis boom. Like, I think we've made people feel like there's a place for them in the sport, whether they're, you know, in it, keep keeping track of the match results and caring about the player strings or more importantly, if they just feel like they can, you know, be a casual fan or consider themselves a recreational player. That was always the mission and that remains the mission. And I think I'm probably the most proud that that's been the, the part that's been working that I'm the most proud of. Where's the, um, where for your brand, where is the best growth area? Is it, I mean, imagine it's not the publishing part just cause like I, I live in the media world in 2023. <laughs> is it, is it, is it the merchandise? Is it the um, experiential stuff where you can sort of be part of the racket universe at a, at a tennis tournament? Where, where do you see as an entrepreneur um, the best place for what is a media brand to grow for you? Yeah. You hit on the two biggest ones, the sort of e-commerce, the fact that there's like a hand coded website from a guy who sells you things. If you want some tennis shoes uh, that hasn't really changed since like Netscape, Netscape Navigator 2.0 um, the e-commerce obvious is just like massive and we've slowly been chipping away at it, but it takes a ton of money and time. Um, and we really should own it and we will, it's just sort of, uh, an inevitability, but you know, again, money and resources are needed to really, I think, realize the value in that and tying it to our, you know, really cool merch and our really cool, um, publication, but also resale and re-commerce and archive. And, you know, there's just such a massive opportunity there that nobody's really seizing on, especially in a cultural way. Um, and the, and the events and experiential people want to play tennis. They want to travel to play tennis. They want to be part of the world of tennis. And we throw these events where the world of tennis and culture and everyday people, because we don't charge attendance, we're not filtering for the richest people. We're filtering for the coolest people because it's invite only. And that's what brands want to pay for. And that's how we're able to create amazing content at them for our various media channels. And because we are, um, you know, seen as people who are cultural arbiters. And I think that's really, again, where the opportunity is for us to grow. And, and don't get me wrong. Like I would love for the print magazine to continue circulation. At a certain point, we're going to have to probably commit to doing more digital stuff. When you and I had an initial conversation and I was sort of saying that the internet was stupid, you know, that was in the days of, uh, you know, mass advertising as, as banner ads were dominating the internet clicks were basically worthless and all the ad spend was moving into, um, you know, platforms now that that's happened and everyone has figured out, okay, we have to be subscription or we have to be, you know, print, we have to be bespoke. Now it's looking a lot more like the world that we always saw, which is don't give your content away for free because people will treat it as free um, and therefore valueless. So now, you know, I think that's another huge opportunity for us. I'd love to get more into documentary film and, and shorts. You know, I, the more I sort of 
am pushed on this and you're not pushing very hard. So it's coming out of me pretty freely. It's just the opportunity is massive. And I think that's sort of what the, the, the real challenge there is like how fast to grow with what temperament and with what partners and how to do it right without messing up the brand that we've built that's built on warmth and keeping the door open and, and authenticity. Because I think that's the main asset that we have that we can't mess up. All right. Last one before uh, we move on to some media stuff. Um, what do the players think of the brand? And is it important for you to um, have the the players like be aware of it? Forget about like sort of taking part of it. But, you know, one of the things I remember in covering the U.S. Open uh, would be to sit in the players lounge. I don't know. I wonder if you could still do that, but you could back in the day. Um, and you'd see the players reading like the different magazines of the week or they'd be reading, um, you know, maybe if there was like a feature in Sports Illustrated or something like that. So how how important is it for you as a brand for the players, not necessarily to be ambassadors of the of racket, but at least to be aware of it? We it's an interesting question because we didn't get a lot of buy in from the tours or other media. So we kind of had to build from the outside in. And what's interesting is we kind of started plucking off players who would find their way to us, maybe because they had a really smart agent, which is not an oxymoron, but more often the case, you know, is rare. Um, Who kind of were like, Oh, this is a new way to tell stories together. My player is not going to be the player who, fits the one narrative. And I just want to emphasize one narrative that anybody in tennis media knows how to cover, which is dominance. So we're going to have to get a little creative. And more often that was the players themselves who were like, huh, I like to photograph. I like to design. I like watches. I like, uh, in Andrea Petkovic's case, I'm a credible author in fiction and nonfiction. And I'm now going to be at the caliber of being included in the best American sports writing uh, anthology, which is true. Um, you know, and I think for us, like we've picked the players off, not because we've set about intending them to, because if you go after access, everybody just immediately, um, starts going into negotiation mode, like, well, how long do you need them? And what are you going to ask? And I need to see the questions. And so we just completely eschewed that approach. And we said, we're going to be here. We're going to be doing cool stuff. And if anybody wants to come our way and play in our space, then great. A more recent example is what, you know, Daria Kasakina is doing with her girlfriend and their vlog. Like that, we haven't done a project yet with them together. They were on our podcast, but like, how do, that's a player who, despite being top five in the world, is also a creator and a thought leader and somebody who is one of the most courageous people I've ever met being a gay anti-Putin Russian, right? Like that's where we live. And I don't want to talk about her tennis, although it's great and we can, but I want to talk to her in the world of racket because so much about what she stands for as a person will resonate with all of the different audiences. And she knows that we're seeing her as a human being. Right. And I think even though the players don't read in the players lounge anymore, to my knowledge, I've, I've not had access to the players lounge as a media credential, but as part of a team on occasion, um, they're on their phones. But I think even just the visual aesthetic of racket gives them a sense that there is a world beyond having themselves distilled into score lines. And I think for that reason, the ones who are smart and creative and interesting tend to float our way. And I think that's a real privilege because it changes the power dynamic and allows us to be collaborators. And having Naomi Osaka guest edit an issue of the magazine a few years ago came about because we were essentially peers. It wasn't 
something that we, you know, there wasn't a transaction involved. It was just, this is a creative outlet for this person. And we are bringing a different facet of her using our pages um, than she would be able to express otherwise. Yeah. And plus, I mean, you have an elegant. Uh, yeah, it looks cool. They like looking cool. Be, exactly. That'd be attractive to them. All right. Let's get into a topic that uh, I know is very, very important to you that you often talk about. Uh, you know, you and Renee Stubbs have a lot of, of opinion on this, which is good. Um, and that's the coverage of tennis today. So let's just break this down um, in two different parts. First, the coverage about tennis that we read. And then the second, the coverage that we watch. Actually, I'll reverse it. I'll do the coverage that we watch first. Um, as we are talking now, the French Open obviously is underway. And that's being aired on Tennis Channel, NBC, and Peacock in the U.S. Most of the time when it comes to tennis in the United States, your your tennis watching will either come from ESPN or the Tennis Channel. So from your perspective, Caitlin, and this is a very, very broad question, um, what is your assessment of the television coverage or the broadcast coverage? Because it's not really just television anymore. The broadcast coverage of tennis in the United States. Uh, I don't know. Is there a worse word to use than poor? It's poor. It's very poor. It's, it's shockingly poor. It's not only shockingly poor given the quality of the actual sport content, but it's poor given the budgets it would take to make it good. Um, it's poor for how they treat the audience in terms of uh, the quality of talent and broadcast materials that they uh, allow to sort of be the standard. And it's poor in terms of access. In fact, it's probably the poorest in terms of access. Um, you know, we can talk specifically about the two entities you mentioned, but the fact is, if you want to be a tennis fan, you have to work really, 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 really hard to watch it on TV. And the stupidity and self-cannibalization of the sports sort of media assets between the two broadcast entities you mentioned, but also the governing bodies and the four slams has just resulted in a complete mess. And so you mentioned four different entities upon which a American tennis fan would have to encounter, pay, log into and follow in various different ways that changes every time they want to watch a match for the most part. And that's just like absolutely unacceptable. The fact that it's not on a mainstream channel both linear and streaming and it's not accessible more than it is and it's not unified is a ultimately a failure of the governing bodies of the sport itself for not being smarter about how to reach audiences they probably should just own their own rights and sell their own broadcast um but while they have it totally atomized among different entities what they've done is just made the case against watching tennis and that's to me uh really the fundamental problem once you figure out how to watch it the problem is persist let me ask you about the um, the broadcasters themselves. I think for me, my biggest issue historically when it comes to watching tennis is just the blatant conflict of interests that exist in so many of the broadcasters. It's not necessarily like about um, diagnosing strokes or match. I, I think there's enough people who are pretty good at that who um, can give you that. Although I, I would argue maybe the best person who could really do that today is Andy Roddick, and he doesn't even call matches, but he'd be really good at it. But generally speaking, Caitlin, you know this. It's just 
Player X has a relationship with Broadcaster Y, whether they played at their academy or whether they once coached there or whether they have some kind of connection when it comes to like tour management. And as a viewer, I just I never really know like kind of what I'm being told or maybe more importantly, what I'm not being told. And I, I get there's conflicts in every in, in so many television sports. But tennis, I always feel like really, really takes the cake on that. I mean, you yeah. know, like Mary Jo Fernandez is a prominent broadcaster and her husband repped Roger Federer for most of his career. Like in general, that would not exist on in other sports, but it it's it, it it's just like commonplace in tennis. Yeah. So that that's always been mine. But I think you your some of your issues go deeper. That's a that. big issue, no doubt. I think for me, the real issue that I think that kind of like um unifies what I think and, and what you just said is just there's so little outside um, interaction with the world. It has been allowed to sort of be- become this extremely insular world where everyone has a revolving door of academy, brand ambassador, coach relationship, and tour sort of executive. That it it's like when I was at the Washington Post, we did a huge project called Citizen K Street, which talked about like the lobbying business and how like basically like at one point late in the 80s, late in the 70s, early 80s, there was like a law that changed. And Washington went from having like 10 lobbyists, I'm exaggerating, but let's call it 10 to like 7,000. And just how that changed the whole world, really, because people would just go to Congress, become a lobbyist, work for a consulting firm, rinse, repeat, and just everyone kind of took care of their own, own interests. And it just kind of became this festering swamp. And I think for tennis, like there just hasn't been an injection of outside interest, capital, and um, you know, really talent and chops because there are people who are in the sport who are wonderful. My, my podcast co-host is one of them. Renee Stubbs does an incredible job. Mary Carrillo, who you only hear really occasionally on Peacock now is uh, remains incredible. There are people who've loved this sport who know how to communicate it to the outside world, whether it's really tactically uh, sort of nuanced like Renee, especially because she's coached so much and obviously is a player or Mary, who's was also once a player, but has, you know, really been the gold standard of broadcast professionalism, uh, on HBO Real Sports, among other things, for you know the better part of forty years, like you know there are still people who do it really well, but just this revolving door of player, player agent, um, you know, player agent coach. Just most of them are not good broadcasters of anything, and even though they know the subject matter, they don't know how to talk about it. And there's not what you have in any kind of a, another sport where it's NFL or NBA or WNBA, where it's a mixture of player insight and analyst. You just don't have enough of it in tennis. And the the powers that be have really continued empowering a lot of these really, really, really old, mostly men, players to keep being the main voice of it. And I think the decisions of the executive producers who put that talent on, you know, there's not enough financial incentive for them to really change it. And you have to be like, hey, dummies, you're missing the new audience. Hey, like, look at all this stuff that's happening that these players that you're that you're that your player commentator you know, in some cases doesn't do prep or pronounce the right names or have any kind of an insight into the game because he maybe hasn't played a professional tennis match since the eighties. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but like, you know, that, that doesn't lead to very good coverage. And for my, for my issue really doesn't invite the casual fan in because you're hearing things. I'm hearing things that are not only not informative, but also in some cases, like they're deeply offensive, like, one of the Chinese players names was sort of singled out as, as a, as a joke, butt of a joke during the Australian open 
uh, commentary during uh, the Australian Open by the McEnroe brothers. Like, it was just sort of like, oh my God, we're le- this is the standard? Like, it's crazy. Not to mention the fact that ESPN didn't send anybody to Australia this year. So most of the commentary was filmed at a studio in Bristol with a very ill-fitting, kind of looked like a Zoom background of the Melbourne skyline. And I was just thinking, this is the third most popular global sport. This is one of our marquee events. How did we blow this? How did this get this bad? Well, it tells you, It. I mean, you know, they can claim otherwise, but that decision tells you what they think of the property. Like that, that's where the rubber meets the road. And if you are, you know, it's, I, I wouldn't like it, but if you're telling me like, okay, we're not going to go to Charleston and do this tournament live, you know what I mean? Or we're not going to go to, uh, you know, sort of make up your, your middle of the year tour stop. Like I may not like it as a tennis fan, but all right, if you guys are suffering some financial issues, I get it. But the Australian Open is a major. Like that's it's like not cover it's like not sending a broadcaster to the NBA conference finals. Like that just would never be a decision by those entities. And so to me that just it tells you so much about what they think Which of Which is so crazy to me that they buy the rights to it. Right, right. It is it's it's self defeating because you're Paying for it. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because I'm sure you're keenly aware of this, is, man, it does feel like that this is a sport where maybe they will put everything behind a paywall. And, like, they're not going to put the final – maybe the U.S. Open would be different, but, like, the finals of Wimbledon one day are just only on ESPN+. Plus. You know what I mean? Or the finals of the Australian Open are only on ESPN+, Plus as an incentive or as a driver to get people to sign up for that. That That is something I do honestly worry about for tennis fans. Maybe I think the Open would be the last one just because it is the U.S. championship. But if you were to tell me, like, th- you know, if you say, hey, would you be surprised three or four years from now if every tennis major is behind a paywall and not, no longer on any kind of uh, over-the-air television? I would tell you I would not be surprised. It would be terrible for the sport, I mean, I, but I, I think it's. I'm in a world where it's already terrible. And it's already terrible because the only mainstream broadcast is windowed. It's not, it's not, there's not much of it. Correct. And it's not, um, it's not promoted, really. And so I'm already in that world where tennis is all behind a paywall because I don't watch linear cable like nobody under 50 and so you know espn has already i think confronted and decided what to do about that financial reality which is just all of their tennis coverage is essentially paywalled and then yes you can get it occasionally on peacock or nbc when it's not you know yeah i mean you can still get stuff on espn you you didn't you didn't put a single match on uh on non non ott non-streaming during the australian open you could fact check that but i'm pretty sure yeah yeah, i guess i guess yeah, I'm sorry. I guess I'm more focused on the U.S. Open, but correct. The the Australian Open... I don't think they put a single match on ESPN channels. Yeah, it felt like the future. A bad future, but it's that a bad felt future. Like the future. Which, again, like, if I am the... This comes back not to ESPN and their own economics, because I get why, you know, uh, they do such a bad job with tennis that it's become a bad product. And I'm speaking generally, because, you know, obviously there's a few good voices and there's a few interesting... You know, there's some good people who work there, obviously. But, like... I get that, like, in the pantheon of ESPN, like, they don't see it as a profit center. So, so, yeah, let's shunt it over here. Fine. What bothers me and where this is actually self-defeating, what I'm actually focused on as a person who's a media entrepreneur is the governing bodies cannot sell rights to entities who do that. Suspend the deal. Fire the people. 
get a new deal or distribute it yourself and understand that the long-term value of audience creation will pay off rather than your short-term broadcast deal. That's where the vision of the sport needs to go. That's what we're missing. And to me, that's where, you know, I don't do a media deal if I'm a slam or governing body and there's too many of them, which we know because there's seven. Um, I don't do a media deal without a comprehensive plan for audience growth, digital engagement, social sharing, you know, diverse voices covering every match, knowledgeable voices, non-conflicted voices, you know, all that stuff. Like don't, don't do the deals bet in your product because the product could not be better. Tennis is amazing to watch. It's amazing to watch. And it's yeah, the that's, most that's, popular that's, that's it's been in a irony. long time. So have faith in the product and actually hold your partners to accountability to make sure that the audience is encountering it in a way that is uh, compelling and accessible. Yeah, the only thing I was just going to add is that's the irony of all this is like the athleticism of the sport's never been better. I think we have the best product we've had in decades, especially because of the parity on the men and the women's side. It's amazing. That's the irony of this is that like, again, like I, we were talking right before the air or before we went on air. It's not a radio right before we started taping. Um, how how great I thought the Andrescu as a rank match was. It was a first round match in, in the French and it felt like you know, it, it felt like a like a semi or, you know, or a big time quarter or something. And, you know, so you're right. Like the depth, the depth in terms of talent on both sides is massive. You just have to know how to talk about it and know how to promote it and know that, OK, if we have a, a dual French conflict on court Simone Mathieu late into the night, which I was lucky enough to be in attendance for a few nights ago in Paris, know that even though neither of those people are names, unless you're a Denis Shapovalov rap super fan because Quarantine Mote was a guest verse lyricist on it. That's really the only way you'd know this guy. And he was playing a French wild card, but you know that that's going to be a rollicking atmosphere. You'd be able to entertain and inform your audience that Quarantine Mote just came back from wrist surgery. So he's playing with basically one arm. He has no left wrist. So he's slicing all of his backhands and he's on a four set battle in the most beautiful court in tennis. And the French crowd is going crazy, switching sides and allegiances, right? Every match matters if you know how to tell the story. And I think for me, that's sort of what the, you know, I don't want to even trash anybody for missing it. It's just that's what the opportunity is. And that's what I'm focused on. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. All right, let's move to the writing side. Um, and this is obviously broadly between uh, digital entities, uh, legacy media outlets that still have some kind of print components. And so when, um, when I first started really being interested in tennis, and certainly when I was on the Sports Illustrated's uh, tennis team, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the LA Times, and ESPN, 
just to name five, um, <laughs> all had full-time writers when I covered my first U.S. Open. I, tennis writers, I should say. I, by the way, I'll add Sports Illustrated to yeah. that because at least in some form between John Wertheim and Scott Price, they you know weren't covering tennis on a weekly basis, but fairly close. I mean, we, there would be tennis columns, and certainly every single uh, major was covered um, and the U.S. Open was staffed with five of us or six of us. It was incredible. Today, uh, Caitlin, if I go through this, I don't believe ESPN has a full-time tennis writer. The L.A. Times does not. The Boston Globe does not. The Washington Post does not. The New York Times sort of has, you know, Chris Clary just left, and he was a full-time tennis writer. Matthew Futterman is doing um, tennis on a semi-full-time basis. So they may be the the last vestige of this, but this is like, pretty incredible to me that like in 2023 where things are the place i work at the athletic occasionally covers tennis does not have a full-time tennis writer at all I'm trying to think of some other like uh big media like outlets you know like wh- whoever you want to sort of put as a big digital player like uh you know bleacher report or whatever uh cbssports.com foxsports.com none of these places have any kind of full-time uh, tennis uh, writer. So in terms of the sport, when it comes to, to sort of writing, you got to generally on a day-to-day basis, you know, you'll go to a place like yours or you'll go to like tennis.com or you'll go to um, tennischannel.com. But that that's where the daily um, writing is, you know, like, uh, um, you know, WTA Insider, uh, my buddy Courtney. Morning. So it's pretty fascinating, right? It's just like the major legacy outlets, which had incredible histories of writing tennis, um, for the most part, there's no more full-time people doing it. It's really, it's, yeah, it's, it's bleak. Um, it's bleak. And I, I, I don't know what to say other than, um, it, it couldn't be a more globally engaged, diverse and, on the whole, compelling narrative. So I don't know why the New York Times only now appears to have, I'm not even sure, one full-time reporter and why they haven't had a woman full-time writing, you know, that kind of goes without saying, uh, especially a person of color given the sport. You know, I could go on about the New York Times specifically. Um, you know, Ava Wallace, who sometimes covers the this the tennis for the Washington Post is excellent. You know, you can point to plenty of examples of people who are doing great writing. The defector, uh, you know, obviously there's still great writing where people parachute in. It's just not, and it's really, 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 uh, just frustrating when you go into the newsrooms and you don't see many faces that are not old and working for like a regional newspaper, usually in Europe where they still care about that. But also, well, I was just going to ask you. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but it, it's good for our audience to know. Like, when you're at a major abroad, what is the like? W- is the outlook better, like for daily coverage in France or daily coverage in in England or you know or Australia? One hundred percent. They care much more about that sport in a daily way, where it's like usually the country's third, second, or maybe even sometimes is given certain Eastern European pop players' popularity, like the first most popular sport in this in those countries. I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration, just because the power of you know, European football is so powerful in, in every part of the country that maybe it's not the first most popular sport, but it's it's robust. It's not very diverse, but it's robust. We just held an event in Paris at the Play de Tokyo. We had a racket house event with three days of programming, one with Head, the second day with Hagendaz, and the third day with Fet Lemur, which is a local French charity. 
and, you know, just three days of playing and content and fun stuff and DJs and music and ice cream. And um, the first day with Head was really media heavy. And it was a lot of people who are European, mostly men who want to talk to um, Yannick Sinner or Novak Djokovic about whatever. And, you know, I don't love that. I don't think that that's like the best our media apparatus has to offer. But in Europe, those are their priorities and their news. Not a lot of people wanted to talk to Coco Goff, which was nuts, because to me, she was the most interesting player there by a mile, not to mention Mukova and others. Um, But, you know, it does really show that at least like in Europe, and I haven't been to Australia to cover uh, the Australian, um, but in Asia, certainly there's deep, deep, deep in care and resource uh, still probably with lots of room to improve, but care and resource in the U S it's bleak. It's just really bleak and sad. And I think if you're, uh, you know, working for a, you know, I'll, I'll never forget because it hasn't improved, uh, once at the U S open sitting courtside with Gary Nathan, who became one of our columnists writes our newsletter at the time was with Deadspin and now writes for, and is, I think a founding member of defector, Laura Wagner, who, uh, no, sorry, Chloe Cooper Jones, who at the time was working for GQ also one of our contributors and Alex Jung, who is uh, then and now at New York magazine, we're all sitting, you know, at a, at a remote court watching Naomi Osaka, like absolutely dismantle someone in the first round without many attendees. And I was like, Hey, how about, how? and all these people are diverse. All of them are young and all of them are among the best writers about our sport in a generation. And I was like, Hey, why aren't I seeing you guys in the media center? Where have you been? And they said, none of us got approved for credentials. And then I go into the media center and I see who's credentialed and it's, it's an, it's an emergency, you know? So again, all I can say is we are trying to change that, but I would love, love, love for every single one of these tournaments. Some are better than others. You mentioned Charleston, which is extremely out of the game. Um, But a lot of these tournaments, especially the slams, you know, it's the same thing. It's currying favor with agents and uh, players and people with whom there are agency relationships, you know, the media is not independent. It's not strong and it's not um, what we would expect for a major sport. And it certainly doesn't look anything like what treatment other sports get in this country. Um, and I think for me, the fact that New York times is down a reporter and the fact that there's, as you listed at all of these major news, news outlets, very few resources devoted to it. The fact that the athletic doesn't cover it really, um, you know, it's just sort of like, again, it's, it's, it's nuts to me because it would make the sport so much better um, from the inside out and from the outside in, there's just so much content. Like I was blowing people's minds, casual fans talking about like stuff that's sort of table stakes and tennis. Like, oh yeah, that guy just had wrist surgery. He can't hit over his backhand. This guy is a Donald Trump supporter. This guy, you know, just all this basic stuff that if it was basketball, you'd know, you know, the names, dates, and biography of every player on the bench. And in tennis, you know, like you said, nobody knows world number three, Jessica Pagula. Yeah, I hope I, I'm hoping the athletic at least increases that. I don't know; it's not a decision I make at my level, obviously. But you know, somebody who covered it, obviously, that's I. Um, I hope that uh, for sure. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. All right, the last one I want to get to you. Uh, the last topic I want to get with you on is <laughs> this is kind of funny to me, and I because you're in the middle of it, I'm not, and I think you'll have some interesting insight. Every sport has its own sort of like quote unquote Twitter, you know, there's <laughs> basketball Twitter, there's like NFL Twitter, there's you know whatever college, there's college football Twitter is kind of insane. Um, there's tennis Twitter. I like I know this from my buddy Wertheim, and you're obviously in the middle of that. So like, what what is tennis Twitter? Like, it's it the, in my brief experiences dancing in this, 
Tennis Twitter is very opinionated, and if you are, like, off on something, they will hammer you. It's very similar to me to, like, soccer Twitter, where if you're off on your tactics or if you sort of are, you know, like, it's there. How do I say this? Tennis Twitter is, like, engaged in the sport, like the nomenclature of the sport. They're deep in it. It's not a casual kind of Twitter. It's an intense Twitter. Oh, intense is right. um, I've been trying to spend less time on Twitter per my wife's dictation, which I think is probably healthy for me. Um, But, you know, the one thing that Tennis Twitter has, which is, yeah, I think, like, really engaged super fans, um, a legion of stands who are – for one player and one player only, which is not Stan Varenka, not Stan, the man, Stan Vavrinka stands like, you know, Eminem type of stands who will just ride or die. Like one time I accidentally made a reference to Miley, uh, to Taylor Swift on Twitter about how, um, she was in the cover Rolling Stone with one of the Beatles. And then like, I experienced Twitter as a Taylor Swift, um, antagonist for an afternoon, which was insane. I just was like, Oh my God, the world is not okay. Um, there are some nationalist components to it, especially some of the Eastern Europeans who feel very, very sort of siege mentality around their player. Like I made a pretty casual comment on our podcast uh, a few weeks ago saying like, I don't love watching Igor Fiontech play tennis but comparatively. And it became a news issue because of Twitter uh, in Poland. So t- tennis Twitter took it on. And then I guess Poland had a f- several newspaper articles written about it, which to me is like actually sort of the sign of a good, media apparatus in Poland and also probably like a more stable democracy. If that's, if this is like they're prominent worried. American journalist criticizes world number. Two. Right. Like, okay. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the, the main point I want to make about tennis Twitter, despite having, you know, my share of dustups is that I wish the sport would figure out a way to let them share content and get atomized pieces of matches and gifts and replays and, news and tidbits out the way that everybody else does because tennis twitter is very niche but i suspect it's very similar operationally maybe with a few more nationalist components but you know very similar to any other sport um like you mentioned and so for me it's the sheer stupidity of the takedown notices that a lot of these media broadcasters file against specific twitter users if they share a screenshot or share a video Idi- clip idiotic. and it's like you dummies what do you think is happening here super fans getting each other engaged and sharing young them, super you know? fans young super fans you know and that's just on twitter which i'm sure is also you know the case on other platforms that are le- even younger leaning so i think for me like you know it's it can be an unpleasant experience and certainly it's not a place where you do, you know necessarily see or act as your best self but i do think there's a really vi- vital and viable component to this conversation that obviously the sports media isn't capturing and that could be used as as a way to you know engage and, and essentially prospect for new fans. Yeah, you're so right. The the way to look at this on TikTok or whatever is to reverse engineer your thinking here. It's actually to open up the sport as much as you can. So you you work with them to provide highlights or uh, you know gifs or whatever. Like that that is. Do you know how many NBA fans are NBA fans just because they can see a quick highlight of somebody dunking or Steph exactly. Curry hitting a three-pointer. They don't watch the full game. They're what that's their that's their engagement with the sport. And tennis has an incredible um sport where like 
the great points are short, bite-sized points, right? You know, no one's watching an eight-minute point. I mean, you know what I'm saying, and sometimes it happens. But generally, like, the, it's a 35-second clip of somebody doing something incredible or somebody doing something funny. It's such a missed opportunity. It's just advertising. It's free advertising. And I think for, for again, like, I am tempted to put on blast some of the people in this sport who I perceive as being, like, lazy or pass their prime and don't care to do better. Yeah. You're not a Mac. You're not a John McEnroe fan. And I, I, totally I just, he sort of, I, I, I didn't care about him as a person as much as just like, there's, there, it's evident of a cohort of, and a, and a style whose time has passed. And I think for me, you yeah, know, the, the, the problem, the problem is like, I, I'm not saying I disagree with you. The, the, I shouldn't say it as a problem. ESPN executives would disagree with you, and that's why things aren't changing. That that's how I would. And, and I ha- I have some hope because I think ESPN executives have not historically agreed with me, and this is why we don't have very good, um, on the whole, uh, commentators and coverage. But I also think that there is change afoot, and there has to be, from what I've heard, some you know new ideas to sort of say, hey, we have this asset. Why aren't we milking it like crazy? And I think, you know, all it really takes is for somebody in charge to be like, huh, this could be so much better for like, actually, like, I know what those talent salaries are, they're profound, and they eat up the budgets for everything to be good and all the shoulder content and the pre-produced content and all the stuff that ends up being promotional content, right? Like, it's not a, they have the funding, it's, it's just a, how is it being allocated and is a name that was once resonant, still resonant and worth their talent salary? I don't know. Because once you get past that, all of a sudden, the math changes. Yeah, they, I mean, we got you know. We'll we'll sort of finish up here, but like the, the 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 there are bigger problems with ESPN being your primary rights holder. Obviously, it's ESPN, so it's still going to give you the biggest reach and distribution. But because, as you said, I thought thoughtfully and accurately that there are so many sports ahead of tennis at ESPN that includes the shoulder programming and all their talk shows and all their you know various sort of different points of entry. The tennis never gets talked about at that place other than for the live events that they broadcast. And so the upside is it's a broad place and, you know, it's still in 70 million or so homes. The downside is it just you never hear about that sport, generally speaking, on any ESPN entity unless they are broadcasting the event. Yes. That's that's it. And that that's a killer because I think a lot of casual fans – enter your sport through other ways. Again, I don't have a solution because it's not like uh, all the tennis, like morphing to the tennis channel would solve this. Um, I, I do. I, I, I would say, I don't know how you feel about this, Caitlin. I would pay attention to the apples and the Amazons heading. Totally. Forward. I would love that. The, ten, the tennis, the tennis demographics like fit into the demographics that they like young and discretionary income high especially for a place like Amazon, which has tennis roots already in Europe. So that wouldn't surprise me that if we had this conversation five years from now, like, like Amazon is the, is the home of tennis in the United States and like whatever that means. And if you're a tennis fan, you just like, you know, you live with the fact that you got to pay, you know, whatever it is, $14 a month for Amazon Prime. Which is, would be great. I mean, I think I was a little disappointed to see them retreat because I know they had access to um, some of the live rights in the UK um, and uh, retreated a little bit, but they have them in France. I mean, I think you're right. I think that is the future where it's all just part of a bundle. And, and I think for me, it's less about which streamer it's on because the streaming reality has already arrived. So I don't think so much about broadcast just because I don't use it as a product, even when the main channel takes 
the finals or semifinals, I'm watching a stream of the world feed if it's tennis channel, because I don't like the main commentators or I'm watching ESPN Deportes on stream because I don't like the main commentators and it's fun in Spanish, you know, like I'm already consuming the product of the future and it's probably not even, it's a future that's already like well ensconced, not even, you know, the future. So for me, it's more like I care less about which streamer it's on. I just want that to be the best possible product, which it's so profoundly close, not close to being that we have to fix it. And more importantly than that, if you can imagine, because the product is so important, but more importantly than that, just make it unified. So it's in one place. Everyone knows where to watch F1. Everyone knows where to watch, even though it's, it's proportioned across different broadcast outlets, football, right? Tennis has made it the most difficult possible. I have had an easier time watching darts than watching tennis. And that's upsetting. And it's fixable. Caitlin Thompson is the co-founder of Racket, which, as we mentioned at the top, it's a uh, tennis-focused media company, has its quarterly print magazine, but it's much more. Uh, It's merch. It's experiential experiences. You can obviously find that um, on the web. Uh, Head to their site. She also co-hosts the Racket Magazine podcast with Renee Stubbs, who uh, that's a podcast I recommend, and Caitlin is correct. I think Renee's uh, fantastic whenever I see her on ESPN. Uh, Caitlin, thank you. I, it's, I don't get to talk tennis enough with with people, and um, and so this was really, really great for me, and it's just very cool to just like hear somebody who I respect and their thoughts on the sport. Um, it's just something that, uh, um, because I'm a little out of the tennis loop right now that I, that I haven't uh, experienced, so... I wish you nothing but the best of success with uh, Racket, and thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. A pleasure. Thanks again for having me. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Caitlin Thompson for uh, coming on and, uh, and uh, giving me an hour of tennis talk, something I've been longing to do for a while. Previous podcast this week, we had Jeff Van Gundy, who uh, talked about not only NBA Finals, but uh, some of his uh, bold ideas to make the sport of uh, basketball faster. We did uh, the post-LeBron James content universe with uh, Sam Amick and the WNBA's record viewership start with LaChina Robinson. If you're into succession, I had Alan Seppenwall on, the Rolling Stone chief television critic, to talk about how he does his amazing reviews. Before that, Brian Curtis and Ben Strauss were on to talk about Pat McAfee's move to ESPN. And then we had Endeavor president and CEO Mark Shapiro on on May 17th. I want to thank uh, Patrick Antonetti, of course, for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at uh, Odyssey for their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.